I'm going to be out of town next week, um, and then we have Easter coming up and so on. What we're going to do is we're going to take a little break from the book of John until after Easter. And so as I was considering uh, what to uh, teach upon this week and week after next, I thought what we'd do is dip back into the book of Titus. And the reason I want to do that is because remember those dark days that we called COVID? Some of those sermons during COVID were preached, I'm going to say preached, taught from my desk in my office. Remember those? Uh, have you, is your PTSD, you've blocked them all out? I don't know. I have. Uh, so my thought was, it, it, Titus is an incredibly practical book. You remember that? We were in there for about a year and a half, right? It kind of got us through COVID. Uh, but some of those sermons were from my desk, and they were live-streamed, and you may have watched them at home. You might not have. You were in your pajamas eating Cheerios during the time, and the kids were running around, right? And so there's a couple sermons that were preached uh, just prior to us being able to come back together. And so I, I kind of want to dip back into Titus and bring some of those forward and, uh, and maybe highlight those, some of those things again. Uh, and it's helpful because I think what we've done coming to the Gospel of John is we've tried to provide a balance because Titus was so practical for the church. And as we went a year and a half through Titus, looking at this very practical teaching for the church, my thought was, well, you know what we need? We need to go to a gospel. We need to spend some time just re- reminding us who Jesus is. We need to be reminded of Christology. And so as we've been doing in the Gospel of John, it's been wonderful. Uh, but I want to dip back into Titus this morning. Titus chapter 2. Remember, the book of Titus is incredibly practical. It's, in, it's incredibly practical for a church who simply wants to organize itself according to God's design. And that's our desire this morning, right? Uh, we're not here to be um, innovative. Uh, we're not following my ingenuity or Jared's ingenuity or anybody else's as to what church ought to be. Our desire is simply to get a grasp of what the Bible teaches is uh, the design for Christ's church and then to follow that pattern. Titus really helps us with this. And so, as an assembly of believers, we simply want to know what it means to live out our discipleship to one another in the context of the local church. And so, for example, we want to know what sort of family life glorifies God, right? I hope that's your desire. You're a disciple of Christ. What does it look like to have a family that glorifies God? You want to know, and I want to know, what is God's design for men and for women, In our day and age, we have to go so far as to say we want to know God's definition of man and woman. We want to know how we as a church should relate to the world around us. We want to know what is the relationship between the church of Jesus Christ and the governing authorities. Well, Titus deals with all of that. We are those who desire to live to the glory of God by living out his design for life in the here and now. And so we count a book like Titus very, very valuable. And so, yeah, we're going to dip back into it. It makes sense to return to it here and there because it is kind of a manual for church life. Not only does the book of Titus give the church clear instruction, but it does so from the vantage point of an apostle writing to a pastor. An apostle writing to a pastor. Paul to Titus. And so he gives him direct instruction regarding personal character and responsibilities. In that way, this is a personal correspondence between an apostle and a pastor, but it's also an open letter. So we get to learn from that personal correspondence. As the Apostle Paul tells young Titus, this is how you ought to organize church. Really helpful. And so this enables us to understand even the weight of ministry 
as the Apostle Paul tells Titus, this is how you ought to lead. And I think this helps all of us together to understand the weight of responsibility that's on the shoulders of spiritual leadership, whether it be pastors or elders. And so it helps us to appreciate that our elders are students and stewards themselves, simply receiving from the Lord his design for church and then seeking to uh, implement that design. So it helps us understand that we, elders, leadership, are driven by a mandate to fulfill the commission that's been handed right to us from Christ to his apostles. And so this helps us to understand that we teach what we teach because that teaching is mandated. And so this not only includes theology, which we've been doing a lot of theology recently, right, in the book of John, and it not only means theology, but it also means the practical applications and implications that flow from that theology. And so we are not a church that separates theology from the practical. We understand that all theology is practical, and Titus helps us with that to see the application into church life. And so, what do we do from this pulpit? We teach personal character, yeah? We teach about gender roles, we teach about home life, we teach about child rearing, many other areas of practical life and godliness, because we are under obligation to do so, because this is what Scripture teaches. So, we see this in Titus, we see it in the other pastoral epistles. This morning, take a look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. And you're going to see that the Apostle Paul, in speaking to Titus, in this section, is encouraging him to teach. And he says to Titus, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And you say, all right, this is going to be theological. It can be all about doctrine. Understand that doctrine doesn't just mean some summation of theology. Doctrine is also the practical living of the implications and applications that flows out of theology. And so Paul is telling Titus, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine, that which is compatible with, that which flows out of sound doctrine, and then he's going to show us what that looks like. And so if I were to ask you, what accords with sound doctrine? What would teaching be that accords with sound doctrine? I wonder what your answer would be, and you would probably say something about theology. You probably wouldn't say what Paul is about to say to Titus as he describes what it is to teach the church sound doctrine. But I want you to look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 14. And what we're going to find is that to teach what accords with sound doctrine, and again, this is the mandate of the church, this is my mandate as, as a teacher of the Word of God, to teach what accords with sound doctrine sometimes looks so incredibly practical that we need to do something and say, hey, listen, this morning we want to talk about what it means to be a godly older man. That's what we're going to do this morning. Maybe it means simply saying we want to talk about what it means to be a godly older woman. Maybe we want to talk about what it means to be a godly young man, a godly young woman. Incredibly practical. But what Paul's going to show us is such teaching is that which accords with sound doctrine flows out of theology. So, all that being said, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 14. Paul, after reminding Titus that there are some on the island of Crete who are teaching false doctrine, who are not living in a way which is harmonious with their teaching, the hypocrites, says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And this is what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent to behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, 
to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that no opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive. Now, if you're here and that strikes you when you see that word slaves there, understand there's a cultural context, and if you want more information about that, we preached a sermon in Titus when we were back in it, and I think the title of it was How Jesus Destroys Slavery. So if you want more information about that, check out that sermon, okay? But slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, Paul then gives us a four. That practical teaching that he's just laid out, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, he says that this flows from these realities. Four, so teach all these things, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What he's saying is, we must teach the church that the character of older Christian men and older Christian women and young Christian women and young Christian men must be completely different from the culture because the grace of God has appeared, has brought salvation for all men. And so what? We are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And so our character must be distinct and different, not just from the culture, but from what it once was, from what it once was. So live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This morning we're talking to older men. God has called you older man in light of the salvation which God has brought to us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives. Why? Because he's purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so, older men, this morning we're going to consider what it looks like for you to live out such a life. Look in verse, verses 1 and 2 of our passage. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And so now if you're a woman this morning, you're saying, okay, this doesn't pertain to me. If you count yourself a young man, you're saying this doesn't apply to me. But I wonder how old is old? You might be surprised, maybe what the Bible considers old. You know, the older you get, the older you think old is. (laughs) Says the young man in the front. We know that Paul, in this letter to Philemon, was at about 60 years old, and he referred to himself as an old man. There's also evidence that in the ancient world, an old man was to be 50 or over. Some suggest even as young as 40 years old could be considered an older man, because the Bible only has two categories, young man, old man. It doesn't have a middle-aged man. Young man, old man. Those are the only two categories. So if you're not a young man, you're an old man. So let me just say this. We're not going to nail down a number, but let me just say it's younger than you think. It's younger than you think, okay? And so we're talking to older men. And note that what we have here is Paul 
an older man instructing Titus, a younger pastor, to instruct older men. And so, first of all, that tells us that one of the uh, necessary characteristics of an older man is humility and teachability. Because now you have a young pastor who's being given a mandate from the apostle to teach these older men. That's significant. God would have the young pastor, yeah, instruct older men, but also to respect older men. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. That's Paul again talking to uh, a young pastor, Timothy. Not in Crete, but in Ephesus. And says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And so, yeah, teach older men, but respect older men. Older men must be willing to be taught by younger pastors. Younger pastors must be willing to show appropriate respect for older men. And I say appropriate respect because the scripture does teach that a feature of a well-ordered society is to value and respect those who are older. Which means that as Christians, we don't say, okay, boomer. I didn't say, okay, Google, my phone's listening to me. Uh, and even that's an outdated, that's, that's an outdated uh, reference, isn't it? Uh, but you see trends that happen which seem to reflect the culture's disrespect for those who are older. The Bible says in Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. A society, a well-ordered society, according to God's design uh, for it, is one which respects those who are older. It's good and right for society to recognize and honor older men. In fact, it's so important for a society to respect, to respect uh, this that God describes a nation who is rebellious against him in this way in Isaiah 3. I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them, and the people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow, and everyone is neighbor. The youth shall be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. The sign of a culture which is moving in a direction contrary to God's design is one in which the youth are insolent to the older. And so what we learn is there is a certain level of due respect that are to be given to older men and women. And again, the assumption here is that with age comes a level of experience and wisdom, and that a society should see that as a collective brain trust, a valuable resource which society can tap into, not disregard. If that's God's design for society, then certainly that's God's design for the church. And so that regardless of what the culture is doing, we as a community of believers say that within these walls, we value those who are older. We have to develop that culture. Why? Well, because older folks have an experience, a level of experience under their belts. Labored for many years, experienced successes and failures, learned much in relationships, experienced disappointment and loss, and have managed to make it through those things with their faith intact. They've become wise to human nature. And here's a big one. They've learned what it is to live the Christian life in the midst of a sinful world, while existing in fallen bodies. You will learn, young person, the more you grow, one of the main areas of learning for you in your Christian life is not how to manage to be a Christian in the midst of a fallen culture, but how to be a Christian in the midst of your fallen body. You learn yourself, and you learn your own temptations, and you learn your own depravity, and you learn what it is to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of all of that. Well, those who are older among us with their faith intact are those who have managed some degree of success in those areas from whom we can learn. What the young only know in theory, the older have tested and tried and proven. 
The younger men and women should therefore approach older men and older women with respect. There should be an acknowledgement that these have wisdom and experience beyond our own. These who have lived half a century or more living in a sin-cursed world have valuable insights. And so think for a moment about how culture gets us backwards. I had this in my notes and then I crossed it all out and now I'm going to put it back in. But think about how culture celebrates youth as, as, as if youth, youthfulness is, is, is the resource where we go to for wisdom and insight. I mean, you can even have a young teenage girl at the UN lecturing all the white heads about climate change, right, for instance. And we can all just be in awe about how wise she is, for instance. Uh, the sign of a culture that is deviating from God's design is one uh, which fails to see wisdom in the older and seems to elevate youthfulness as those bastions of wisdom and even looking to them for guidance. It's completely reversed according to God's design. You add to this the idea that our, cult, our, our culture is a technological culture, and so there's, there's continual advancements in technology. And we seem to think that wisdom or worth is wrapped up with how well you engage with the technology of the culture, right? And so generally speaking, those who are older do not keep up. And so younger people are likely to look dismissively at those who are older who are not keeping up with the ever-changing technological landscape. And that's wrong. That's wrong. Without engagement in the latest viral trends or participation in the newest social media platform or ability to wield the the newest tech, the older seem to be dismissed. Irrelevant. The future seems to be firmly within the grasp of the young, and the old then are left behind, and at least that's what culture seems to think. This is very far from God's plan for society. Contrary to what some may think, life is far more than the latest technological advancements. It's far more than the current social trends. It's far more than whatever the current cause du jour is. Wisdom is to know human nature. It's to understand the human condition. It's to discern human purpose. It's to know the path to divine blessing. These are the things that really matter. And those who are older among us with their faith intact have some wisdom where these things are concerned. So these are essentials. And these essentials remain exactly the same, no matter what age we are in or what century we live in. The assumption is that the longer you have lived, the more wisdom you've gained in those important areas. The longer you've lived, the more likely you are to come to Solomon's conclusion in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, uh, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It seems that those who have lived longest in this life are those who come to that very same conclusion. We've tried it all. We've experienced much. And you know what? We still come back to the basic truth. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And if you've been in the book of John with us, you understand to fear God and keep his commandments is to what? Believe in his son. That. It's what it is to do the works of the Father. So, I used this illustration the first time we taught this message, and I don't know if any of you remember it or not, but I think it's helpful. Just the other day, I reserved my campsites at Algonquin Park coming up in August, planning on going with the family. One of the things we like to do when we go camping, we try to do some canoeing, don't do as much as we'd like, uh, as I'd like. Uh, but we do a lot of hiking. 
And one of the things, now we're so familiar with these hiking trails at this point. We've been going there for year after year after year. Uh, but could you imagine going hiking on a trail that you've never been on before? And sometimes that happens where maybe you're on that trail and you don't quite know the terrain. Like, is this a type of hike where we're going to be going straight uphill for the first 10 minutes and then it's clear sailing from there? Is it the type where it's very easy and then somewhere all of a sudden we get hit with some rocky terrain where it's going to get really hard? Well, it would be helpful to know that. Should we put all of our energy up front as we try to scale that steep hill and, and know that it's going to be easy after that? Or should we pace ourselves, understanding it's going to get difficult later? You don't know. You don't know what lies ahead of you. But imagine you're traversing some difficult hiking trail. It's dangerous. It's unfamiliar. You don't know what dangers are ahead of you. You don't know the best way to navigate around them. Then imagine that as you're laboring on this hiking trail, not you don't know what to expect. There's others that are coming in your direction. And as I get a little bit closer, you realize that these guys look kind of rough. They maybe got some mud on them. Maybe look like they lost their footing at some point. Maybe a little scraped elbow. Maybe a little streak of mud down down their pant leg. I don't know. But they're sweaty. They're tired. They look a little exhausted. These are fellow hikers who've made it to the end of the trail and who are now coming back. And they look like they've seen better days. As you consider the state of those hikers you might notice something else. You might notice that their supplies are depleted. Again, their bodies are banged up. But they don't have the same trepidation that you do. You don't know what lies ahead of you. They've been there. They've seen it. And now they've got some confidence because they've accomplished it. Their bodies are worse for wear, yeah, but their experience on the trail has increased their knowledge and their ability. If you were that hiker who was going on that trail and you didn't know what lied ahead of you and you were a little bit concerned about it and you're embarking upon that trail for the first time and you don't really know the trail forward, a little bit fearful, if you were that man or woman who was anxious about the unknowns, concerned that maybe you haven't prepared well for them, how would you treat those passing hikers? Turn up your nose and say, man, what's their problem? I mean, you've got your North Face gear, you've got your backpack on, I mean, you spent all the money, you're ready to go, you're fresh, and you can take on the world, and now you judge these people who go by you who are a little bit worse for wear. But the smart hiker would do what? He would respect the fact that the appearance of these who they are meeting uh, are the way that they are because they've already accomplished what they are setting out to do. He'd recognize that these are accomplished hikers that maybe possess some knowledge that I might want to tap into. You would recognize that that type of wisdom is kind of rare and, you know, valuable. And so if he were smart, maybe he would say to these hikers, hey, why don't you sit a minute, right? Take a load off. Take some of our cold water and let's have a chat. What lies up ahead? What troubles did you experience? Uh... Did you have any difficulty? What should we be warned about? Did you encounter any dangerous animals? Were there areas that maybe you don't quite know which way to go? Maybe you can help us and say, when you get to the fork of the road, go right, don't go left. Is there anything like that you can share with us? The smart hiker would take the time to pick the brain, to understand that there's wisdom there, to find the best way forward. This wisdom would save hours of time, right? Hours of time. It would save heartache 
But you know, there's going to be that arrogant young hiker who says, I don't need any of that. I'm going to find my way on my own to their own peril, right? Those who sit having finished the trail might be able to warn about the hazards that, uh, that await. Could tell you, hey, be careful when you descend that big hill. It's slippery. You might even be able to tell them, hey, listen, there was an area that was full of mud, and one of us stepped in it, and we fell over. But you know what we did? We went and we put some logs down there for you so that you can step over those things so that those who come behind us will have a better go than what we had. You get the picture? God has provided the collective wisdom of those who have gone through life. They've made wrong choices, and they've learned from them. They've made good choices, and they've experienced the benefits of that. They've learned what it is to walk with Christ through the difficulties of life, and they have knowledge to share. And so how should the wise young person consider the older person? As a resource, a gift given by God to the church so that we can learn. Why do you think God gives us the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews? Learn from these men and women who've gone on before you, who went through life with their faith intact. And so he gives us a book of theology and biography. And then he gives us fellow believers also so we can tap into their knowledge and their wisdom through their experience. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. It's a matter of wisdom to have a humility to learn from others. So God would have the church also show due respect to older generations, just like a well-ordered society. Through experience, they've gained knowledge and wisdom, which God intends to be a valuable resource, and so on. If you skip ahead a little bit, you see in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, he applies the same thing to older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, and so on. Saying older women as well, a resource given to the church. Now, this message was intended to be not so much Yes, the value of, of those who are older, but it was intended to look at the character of a godly older man, and we're already 20 minutes into it. So maybe we'll do a quick survey. Look in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Because as valuable as older men and women are to the church, and as much as they have wisdom to share, Paul tells Titus, you also must instruct the older men and older women, because we never stop learning, and we all have temptations at every stage of life. And so Paul says to Titus, teach the older men this. This is what accords to sound doctrine. Teach them to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. And when you see lists like this in the Bible, it's never really a situation where these are character qualities that must exclusively pertain to that demographic. Really what it is, is this particular demographic may naturally have weaknesses in these areas, and so I want you to highlight these particular issues for this particular demographic, when in reality, every Christian ought to possess these character qualities. And so what does he highlight? He says, be sober-minded. Older men, be sober-minded. What does that mean? Does it mean don't get drunk? Well, it does mean that, but there's more to it. Uh, it's, it's really an analogy that he's using here. Certainly getting drunk is, is a sin, we know that. But the idea here is a sober-mindedness, which really means rationality, sound judgment. The older man should not only be respected because of his past experience and wisdom, but should be known 
for his present sober-mindedness. That is, he reliably exercises proper judgment. And so his wisdom is seen in his own present life choices. The term for sober-mindedness literally means, yes, not to be intoxicated, but is used figuratively here. It means to be drawn away by irrational influences. It it, it means to be calm and level-headed. It means to be free from excesses or rash behavior. And so you can see how, uh, although sober is used figuratively, uh, those qualities also require a literal soberness. The godly older man is stable. He's clear-headed. He's not unpredictable. He's not prone to extremes. He sees life situations with clarity and consequently makes sound judgments and gives sound counsel. Sober-mindedness. Next, it says the older man is to be dignified. Dignified. That is, he conducts himself in a way that's worthy of respect. So, just like in all relationships in the Bible, respect the older man. Respect the older man. That is, respect God's design for society and for the church by respecting those who are older. But then he turns to the older and says, behave respectably. And so, we see this in 1 Timothy even as a qualification for deacons and their wives to be dignified. The idea is that the older man has some gravitas to him. He conducts and carries himself in a way that's worthy of respect. It commends respect. There's a seriousness about him. He understands decorum. He's not silly or goofy or frivolous. He's worthy of respect. That He avoids what is vulgar. He avoids what is profane. He doesn't entertain what is off-color, what is appropriate. He has that Philippians 4.8 kind of thought life. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's the idea of dignity. So, sober-minded, dignified. And then Paul says, and this is interesting because in Titus, when he gets to the young men, he gives a list for older men, a list for younger, uh, for, for the older women, you know, a list for younger women. When he comes to the young men, he simply says, be self-controlled. And that's it. Now, we managed to do a series of like five sermons on that, but uh, it just says be self-controlled. But interestingly, he says the same thing to the older men. Be self-controlled. It shows me something about that lack of self-control that exists in younger men. Still kind of there when you get older, right, older men? And so you younger men who are looking to the older men and say, you know, I just can't wait until I get older and overcome these temptations uh, that are tied to youth. Well, maybe they don't go away as quickly as you think they do, right? Or maybe they don't go away at all. Uh, Be self-controlled. What does that mean? A form of this word is found in instructions for the older women as well, and the younger women, and the younger men. And so I'm going to summarize it for you based upon a list that we gave when we talked even about the pastor who was told to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled means that he's a reasonable man whose life is consistently directed by a set of sensible principles. He's not erratic or unpredictable in his positions or reactions. Next, he's not given to extremes but can understand nuance and strike balance. This is so lacking in our culture and such a mark of maturity. You're able to strike nuance and balance and understand that truth is not... Uh, far right, and it's not far left, and we're not trying to just take up some movement or cause, but we understand that the truth as it exists in Scripture is not going to be pigeonholed into what our culture 
uh, defines as one side or the other. He does not run off kind of half-cocked with one truth or another, but rather has the ability to assess the larger picture and properly balance a series of truths, which is necessary even for biblical interpretation, because every biblical doctrine has a balance to it, and much error and heartache in churches is caused by people who don't understand nuance and don't understand balance and want to take one biblical truth and just run with it. Well, that's not what it is to be self-controlled. Also, when giving counsel to others, to be self-controlled means you don't rush to judgment or allow your own prejudices to affect your advice. To be self-controlled means that others can count on you to give well-reasoned, unimpassioned counsel, which will not lead them to undue consequences in life. It also means that he does not pass judgment or offer an opinion until he's heard all sides of an issue. It means he's not known for swings of temperament or opinion, but is rather reliable and dependable and generally predictable in his behavior. He's not given to being overwhelmed or debilitated by emotion in face of disappointment or frustration or challenges, but is rather unflappable. He's not easily led astray by false teaching or distracted by unhelpful controversies or subject to gullibility. He does not get caught up in the moment, making rash, ill-informed, or ill-advised decisions. He's not likely to be led astray by crowds or by popular movements. He is cool and calm and unimpassioned, always using temperate language. That's some of what it means to be self-controlled. So he's to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and then sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. There's a triad there, and throughout the Bible we find this triad of Christian qualities, generally given to us not as faith, love, and steadfastness, but as faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. That's interesting. So in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then Paul told the Thessalonians of 1 Thessalonians 5, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope. Interesting triad. But in our text, Paul tells Titus, tell the older men to be sound in faith and love and not hope, but steadfastness. Well, we'll explain that in a little bit. What does it mean to be sound in faith? It doesn't mean just believe true things. It does mean that, but it means more than that. It means that this individual long ago has become established and rooted in his own faith. To be sound in faith is to be healthy and whole. What he believes and lives by rings true. He's stable and secure and consistent and faithful in his own faith. So he's to be sound in faith. He's to be sound in love. He loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves his neighbor as himself. That's manifest in a persistent love of Jesus. It means that he also possesses the characteristics of genuine love. He's patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist upon his own way. He's not irritable. He's not resentful. And by the way, that is a temptation, frankly, right, for the older generation. Uh, You have body aches. Uh, You have pains, you become, and that can affect your spirit, and so you can likely become uh, irritable. Uh, You can likely become short-tempered and so on. And so we're reminded that love is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's just the manifestation of love. And so he is sound in love. 
And then next of all, Paul says, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. And I say, generally, biblically, we find that steadfastness is not there, but hope. So why does he add steadfastness here? Interesting. Well, we get a clue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul said to that church, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. And what do you expect next? You expect hope and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in this text, you see steadfastness and hope joined together and says the steadfastness of hope. Interesting. What's the idea? The idea is that the godly older man, and by extension all of us, who has a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that he presently is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and that there is a promise of his future coming, and that all of our labors in this life are going to be rewarded, and all of the pains and so on of this life will be vindicated, that hope in the return of Jesus Christ then leads to what? Steadfastness. You can endure, you can persist, you can persevere, you can stay the course. Why? Because of the hope that you have in the things to come. And so Paul emphasizes to the older man, faith loves steadfastness because at the later years of one's life, you may be tempted to say, what? Well, I can just kind of throw in the towel. I can hang up my hat. Uh, things are getting a little bit more difficult now. And kind of that spiritual retirement mentality. Right? And what is that? Well, you know, the retirement mentality is, hey, I've done my due, I'm moving to Florida. Well, some have that mentality in their spiritual life. I've done my due, I'm just going to hang it up. Right? I'm just going to come and I'm going to sit and I'm going to be idle. Spiritual retirement. Uh, what Paul is saying is that God, the older man, is sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Stays the course. Perseveres. He has that attitude to Paul in Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God and Christ Jesus. in Christ Jesus. I just keep going. I'm looking forward to what awaits, and I persevere. To Timothy, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's that hope. And Paul says that he persists and that he presses forward to the attaining of that hope. And so Paul is saying, endurance, perseverance, uh, I maintain it. I'm looking forward to the commendation that comes when Christ returns when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And so what is it to be that servant? Do as much as you can with what God has given you for his glory as you await his return. So in conclusion, the godly older man is an example of sober-mindedness, dignity, self-control, he's sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And as we close, we might ask, why are the older men encouraged to possess these qualities in particular? I noted earlier that these things are highlighted not because older men in particular are the only ones who need to possess these things, but because older men may be tempted to slack off in these particular areas, and that's why Paul has emphasized them. I want to read you a quote from John Chrysostom, the early church father, preacher at Antioch. He says this, There are some failings which age has that youth has not. 
and we can interject there's a lot of failings that youth has that, yeah. So uh, there are some failings which age has that youth has not. Some indeed it has in common with youth, but in addition it has a slowness, a timidity, a forgetfulness, an insensibility, and an irritability. For this reason, he exhorts old men concerning these matters. Tim Chester, in his commentary on this passage, says this, The older man's temptations may be to be grumpy, to pick arguments, to be cynical, or to be weary of giving themselves in service. Natural temptations. And there are commensurate temptations to being young, to being a young man, to being a young woman, and so on. And maybe we'll get to those in the future. The point is, there are natural temptations which accompany aging, and Paul would have the older men recognize this and instead be vigilant in maintaining godly character so as to be an example to others and a credible source of wisdom so that when God tells all of us, value those who are older, then he turns to the older and says, be valuable. So the older man should accept his station in life as an older man. He does not long to be younger. He doesn't try to behave like he's younger. Instead, he embraces that stage of life, and he seeks to order his life as an older man in accord to God's design. He lives in a manner that's dignified and worthy of respect. He seeks seeks opportunity to share the faith and to impart wisdom. In all of this, he remains teachable. He has a willingness to be led and taught, even by those who are younger, as is evident by this very passage. So, In closing, I'm just going to read to you something from D.A. Carson. He recounts when his father, a godly older man and preacher, was 80 years old. D.A. Carson said that he found this in his father's diary that was written as an old man. It's a prayer. He says, Merciful Father, save me from the sins of old men. Too much looking backward, a tendency towards self-pity, whining because of aches and pains. Man, I'm 45 and I relate to all of this. The tendency towards self-pity, whining because of aches and pains, the ease with which I now turn on the television, save me from the sins of old men. Well, let that be the prayer of you if you call yourself an older man this morning. I'm not going to call you that. If you call yourself an older man this morning, uh, let that be your prayer. But then also as a church, let's understand that regardless of what the culture is doing, we need to create a community here where we value those who are older among us and be willing to sit at the feet gain some spiritual wisdom from those who have already been down the trail and back again. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your design for church. And we just pray that you'd help us to implement that design by your power. Help us to be uh, a people who have your values and your priorities. And we just pray for those who are older among us. We just pray that they would uh, be encouraged to continue in their faith, to continue to grow, to continue to mature. Reminded of uh, Paul as he lays out the different stages of growth and talks about the spiritual infant and the spiritual young man and the spiritual older man. And that spiritual older man who just has the desire to know God, back to the basics. And so we pray that you would encourage those older among us to grow and then help those who are younger to uh, value. Help us not to be dismissive as we see older folks maybe moving slower and talking slower and Maybe not being up on the latest trends, not up on the latest uh, advancements or even headlines. Help us not to judge according to a world's judgment, but to see those who are older as a wealth 
of valuable spiritual wisdom and uh, help us to avail ourselves to such. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray for any older men here who, frankly, haven't lived up to their calling as older men. We pray that they would look at the character qualities here and that they would seek to uh, adopt those so that they can be a valuable resource to the church. And then, Lord, we just pray this morning for any who are here who are not yet believers. We pray that they would see their, their need for Jesus Christ and that they'd receive him as Savior and Lord and that they could be set upon that path of sanctification and growth and so that they also could then be developed as an older man or older woman as time goes on so that they can be a resource for your glory as well. Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you for your goodness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.